Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're staying up late for the latest edition of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. We thought it was important to get real-time reaction to Game 4 of the series between Boston and Miami. Plus, we've got a super dope guest. You can find her work in, like, five different national publications. All that and more. But first, Darlene, let's run it. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Monica is a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a three in transition and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. King is a former three and D Baylor baller whose idea of a good time is locking down the other team's best scorer. Monica, King, let's do this. Welcome into the latest edition of Buckets, Boards and Blocks. I am Monica McNutt and in, bump, subbing in for my illustrious co-host, King McClure, who um, has a few little health challenges, but all is well. It is not the Rona. He will be fine, but he did need a sub for this week, is our tremendous producer extraordinaire, my former and first original co-host on occasion, Bruce Bernstein. Ah, the crowd goes wild. I'm going to try not to like have a turnover in my first comment tonight because watching my beloved Celtics tonight, I was just... You know, I'm starting to lose my hair a little bit, you know, but I think I pulled about half of what was left out tonight, just watching all those awful turnovers. See, you are the consummate producer because you're teeing us up right away on the whole reason that we're recording this pod at 1128 on Wednesday night. Miami, 112. Your Celtics, Bruce, 109. Game four. So that means the Heat are now a game away from the finals unless the Celtics come roaring back. I'm going to do my best. We're going to talk about the Denver Nuggets in a little bit, but I'm going to do my best to say, well, you know, Denver came back from 3-1 twice in these playoffs to beat teams, but I don't think either of the teams they beat had the kind of grit and determination that the Miami Heat are showing. That's that's a tough-minded bunch right there. You know, I heard – Ryan Clark today on Get Up remind, I might have been first take, but remind everybody that Jimmy Butler wasn't worried about the barber. He, he was like, I'm in a bubble to win. I'm not worried about my haircut. Um, and as I looked at what could be freeform locks that he's forming in his head during the course of this game, as he knocked down big time free throws with what, a minute to go? Uh, less than a minute to go, I'm sure. Um, I, it's that it's something that's it's an intangible thing Bruce it's an intangible thing grit is a great way to describe it uh let's talk about the big time play from the rookie and Tyler Hero 37 points in 36 minutes on the floor 14 of 21 from the field Whoo! listen if you look at his statistics tonight okay uh 37 points all right uh Believe it or not, he had a minus four, which shows you that the plus minus thing is very, you know, can be very uh, misleading sometimes. But 
the Miami Heat were 10 for 37 shooting threes. He was 5 for 10 on threes. So the rest of Miami's team was 5 for 35, 5 for 27 on threes, which is less than 20%. This kid was unbelievable. Um, just cold-blooded assassin, uh, not afraid of the moment, hit every big shot. Um, you got to give it to him, you know. You got to just give it to Miami, you know, right across the board. The, you know, Boston, you know, look, Jason Tatum had a zero at halftime. And that was, that was looking like the story of the game. And then what does he do? He comes out and gets 28 in the second half. Uh, but again, he also had six turnovers. Boston had 19 turnovers. Miami had eight. So in a one-possession victory, that's kind of the story of the game, really, in spite of all the heroics. Miami, you know, they got all the 50-50s, and Boston just gave the ball away easily way too many times. So... Uh, it's not impossible. We've seen people come back from 3-1, but boy, this Miami team, I just don't see them blowing a 3-1 lead against any team. Um, I'd have to agree with you. And another stat that stood out to me tonight was bench points. 40 from the Heat compared to 22 from the Celts. All right, Bruce, but let me ask you this. And I, I don't mean this in a shady way. I, I, maybe it's not even fair to say this. I'd have to go back and look at Greg Popovich's coaching record to this point in his career when we have this conversation about Pop and um, – why am I blanking on my coach's name? Who's your coach? Brad Stevens. There you go. Brad Stevens being appointed the next big thing in coaching. Are you – what are what where you sit from what you know you're a fan of this team? Because to me, with three minutes to go in the fourth quarter, after Jason Tatum hit – that big three to cut it to three, I think. They just looked like they ran out of gas. Marcus Smart finally attacked that zone, got into the paint for what should have been a short pull-up or a floater, tried to make the bounce pass to Gordon Hayward, and it was a turnover. And at that point, I was like, this team just looks dead. One of my biggest complaints, and I like Brad, but one of my biggest complaints, and I said this at halftime, I don't understand why a guy like Ennis Cantor can't even get his warm-ups off in a game like this. I mean, Boston was taking very shaky shots in the first half. They were The shot selection was terrible. Ennis Cantor, I mean, he can't guard a statue, right? But the one thing that the guy can do is he can open up some space underneath and he can get some, some easy buckets and he's very good on the offensive boards. If somebody misses, the guy's got great hands. I don't understand why he couldn't even get his warm-ups off tonight. And again, by playing a few minutes – that gives somebody else a chance to get a little blow. I thought Robert Williams actually played pretty good. Grant Williams, again, I think he played one minute tonight. So, and the quote-unquote best five lineup that they used in the second half of the fourth quarter got destroyed by Miami. So, look, um, it's everybody gets a little bit of the blame, and of course the coach is going to get some too, but uh, – I like him a lot, but I mean, he is not Greg Popovich by a long shot. Certainly not yet. I mean, talk to me after you win three rings, and then maybe we can start to have that conversation. You said it, not me. You are a Boston fan through and through and have had a as close as a front row seat. I shouldn't say front row seat, but you've had a closer seat than I have as I don't have the same affinity and loyalty. Now, I'm not going to put you out of your misery, Bruce. Let's switch over to the Western Conference. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the conversation on 
Wednesday, the sports talk shows are Jamal Murray saying that they should be up 2-1. When in fact, they are down. The Nuggets have won one game to this point. The Lakers have won two. So it's 2-1 in favor of the Lakers. Should is nice. And I think us having watched that game, I know my jaw certainly dropped when Anthony Davis hit that big shot in game two. I understand that thought process, but basketball is played until there are zeros on the clock. And Anthony Davis did what a all-star top 10 player in the league is supposed to do in that moment. Do you buy that the Nuggets actually have the Lakers right where they want them? No, they don't have the Lakers right where they want them. But I will say this. I mean, as great as Anthony Davis was in game two hitting that shot, I don't understand how Anthony Davis in game three can play 43 minutes, okay, 27 points. That was good. Two rebounds, okay, two rebounds in 43 minutes for Anthony Davis. And, all right, here's the three Laker big men. Anthony Davis, 43 minutes. JaVale McGill, eight minutes. Dwight Howard, 14. So that's a total of 65 minutes by their big men. A total of four rebounds for the three of them combined. I don't think that's going to happen in the next game. And I would be – and then LeBron is going to be LeBron. I mean, he had a triple-double in that game. And, and uh, you know, he was really the, you know, the constant always. But Jokic just demolished the Lakers' entire collection of big guys and uh, has really been, you know, along with Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell probably and Hero, the breakout stars of the whole postseason. Nine of 14 from the field for Nikolai Jokic. Woo! Talk about efficiency. But even Jamal Murray, who had 28 in that game, 10 of 17 from the field. Um, Jamal just – Jamal Murray just disrupt. I am so Tyler Hero had a great game tonight, obviously, but I am so excited for what feels like the quantum leap Jamal Murray's game has taken on this stage in Orlando from the bubble. And I guess I don't know that it's actually his game has taken a big step. Although to be in this position, this deep in the playoffs, playing the way he has, he definitely has taken a step. But I, for me, quite honestly. I can't stay up and hang with all the West Coast games. So I'm excited that I've been able to truly take in this Denver squad. And you know, King knows, every listener on this pod knows, I said from the jump, I was most excited to see what Denver and Utah was all about. I did not, I can't say that I expected Utah to be here, but they are showing up in a big time way. I got to make sure I shout out Jeremy Grant too, who is a DMV product, who was holding Mm -hmm. his own against LeBron, drawing such a difficult defensive assignment. See, that one, that one I don't – you know, Jeremy Grant has been great. He was great at both ends of the court in game three. I don't think Jeremy Grant's going to have 26 points on Thursday night. I mean, and if he doesn't have 26 points on Thursday night, somebody else is going to have to go off. Maybe it's Michael Porter Jr., who really was sort of ordinary, only nine points in game uh, three. But I truly believe that, that – you know, this is when, you know, I've always said nobody grabs a game by the throat like LeBron James. I mm-hmm. expect him to come out on Thursday night and basically grab that game by the throat, set the tone, and then everybody else can kind of fill in and do their thing. But unless Jokic goes for like 30 and 20 and 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 the Lakers big guys forget that they're supposed to grab a rebound every 15 minutes or so, um, I see L.A. 
definitely taking control of that. They were my preseason pick to win the championship. So I'm feeling pretty good, at least about that prediction right now. So what do you feel? Are, so what's your prediction for, uh, for game uh, four? Um, it's late. What's your prediction for game four in the Lakers Nuggets? You know, I really like this Nugget squad. And Myra Metcalf, who's someone who we've had on the pod, friend of the show, tweeted out earlier today on Wednesday, 2020 feels like a Nuggets-Celtics final. And I, I quote tweeted and said, this was a thought I wasn't quite ready to verbalize. I don't, I think your C's are in some serious trouble. I don't think the Celtics part happens. But I can't. The shocking part of the potential idea that the Nuggets would beat the Lakers is that you're saying that this collective upstart of young fellas and Jokic would take down LeBron and AD. I don't know that I see that happening. But would I be entirely shocked if it happened? No. no. They've shown that they can play with those guys. They're, you know, but like I said, when I, I think I said it on one of the other shows. If Jokic is one of the best two players on the court in a game, Denver has a really good chance to win. Mm -hmm. If LeBron and AD are the two best players on the court in a given game, LA will definitely win. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I'm expecting in game four. I mean, Jokic is fantastic. I mean, you could say he's the best center in the league right now, and you probably wouldn't have a whole lot of people arguing with you. Uh, certainly, his offensive skills are amazing. Um, but LeBron James is, I still feel LeBron James when it's all said and done, will go down as the goat. And if he leads the Lakers to the championship this year, he gets just a little bit closer to that, uh, lofty designation. Uh, I would agree with you. And now let me do the thing that I'm supposed to do. Cause you asked me a question and not be the talking head that danced around it. I'm still going to take Lakers, but I think it's going to be a six game series. I think, Fair enough. I think, yeah, I think the Nuggets get another one. And then, like you said, LeBron is like, stop playing. Let's take this thing by the throat now. Because you, and you know what I think will influence this? If Miami is just chilling, waiting. I know well, that we'd like to believe that guys are just, you know, we're dealing with our series. But if Miami is resting up and waiting, I think that's extra heat on that flame that would cause, <laughs> see what I did there? The Lakers to get it done. <laughs> Now, you know, one thing we did see towards the end of the game, Bam Adebayo did something to his either his wrist, his hand, his forearm. We'll have to see what happens, because obviously if, if that guy's not at full strength, Miami could maybe still get past Boston. I mean, they, you know, Boston's got to win three in a row, highly unlikely. But in that next round, without Bam Adebayo, I don't think they stand a chance against the Lakers. That would be a big-time loss. And, and you wonder, as much as we love the young talent rising to the occasion, you wonder if a Tyler Hero is still as effective against LeBron, right? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm, not, I'm sure that young man is like, give me my stage, let me get a shot, just let me at him. But experience is one of those things that I don't think you understand the value unless you have it. But do you feel that the fact that the games are not being played uh, in home arenas where there's a hostile crowd, where in other words, it's a very sterile environment. So a kid like Tyler Harrow, you know, it's like, 
you know, it's a different vibe. He's not going into the TD Garden where the fans are screaming, you know, 18,000 fans or the Staples Center or wherever. So I think somebody like him probably has a pretty good chance to sustain it. I mean, he's been in double figures every single game in the playoffs off the bench. He's had a tremendous playoff run. I would agree with you, but I I think the LeBron factor is not to be underrated. Um, Well, (laughs) I, you know, it's funny. I have very good friends on both the Heat and in the Lakers organization. So it's two franchises that I really kind of like. I mean, obviously I'm a Celtics fan, but Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a, a, a friend of many teams, okay? And so to me that they would, for, for a Heat Lakers finals, I think, you know, we'll rename the Larry O'Brien trophy, the Pat Riley trophy, since he got like five rings with the Lakers and he got three with Miami. So, you know, he's got eight rings between those two teams. So put Riles's head on top of that thing. I didn't even think about that. See, that's why we love your perspective, Bruce, because that would have, it blew over my head. I'm sure King probably wouldn't have registered until you said it, but that's actually super cool to see. And now I'm appreciating those shots of Pat Riley sitting up in the gallery with his mask on and his hair super slick back watching that much more. He's the coolest. I mean, look, there's, it's so funny. Jeannie Buss, the Lakers owner, was on with Mike Wise, I don't know, about a year ago. We were, you know, Mike and Jeannie were talking about Pat, and she's there. Here's what you guys don't understand. You always thought Pat Riley was a chick magnet. You are so wrong. He's a dude magnet. All the dudes want to be like Pat Riley. They want to play for him. He, they want to be led by him. And he really is the, the godfather of South Florida basketball at this point. And uh, you know what? Got to give it to him. I mean, that, that organization has it all going on and, and uh, deserves all of the uh, credit for their you know success and if you want more on the heat organization and their internal workings make sure you go back a couple weeks and check out our podcast with jose pineda the voice of the spanish radio broadcast for the miami heat Woo-hoo! it was a great combo we are into the semifinal round of the WNBA playoffs thanks to COVID, you may have noticed that the WNBA is going head-to-head with the nba playoffs One is not better or lesser than the other. You know, I will not discriminate against my hoops, but it is forcing me to get a lot of work in with my remote. Um, That wasn't supposed to happen, but here we are making the most out of it. You know me on this pod. I love all the hoops, especially women's basketball. That's where I came from. So we are going to make sure that you're up to speed uh, on the semifinals in the W. Unfortunately, they still don't earn as much chit-chatter on the main broadcast in the morning. So I'm here to make sure you get it together. And this week, We've got one of the tremendous reporters that's been covering the W this season so well, but of course, longer than that in her career. She is based in the Big Apple. She's a podcaster and a writer. Her work has appeared in The Athletic, The Guardian, and Deadspin, among other places. Her podcast is called Sports Talk with ELA, and she is Erica Ayala. Erica, welcome to Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to have this conversation because you're, you're a great follow on Twitter. You've got <laughs> great features. Sports Illustrated, we didn't mention in that introduction either. But uh, Bruce wants to know, our producer, what does ELA stand for? Those are my initials, Erica Lindsay Ayala. Now, depending on, you know, who you ask, my father, well, he passed, but, or my mom, both have taken credit for naming me Lindsay, um, and, and they just like the sound of it, so I figured I'd go with it either way. 
<laughs> I love it. Uh, Lindsay's a great name. You're obviously doing tremendous work. I know your dad is proud, and I'm sure that your mom is as well. All right, but let's get into it, sis, because you are here specifically because the WNBA playoffs thus far have been all of that and some more stuff. We had really interesting news this week. The original game one between Seattle and Minnesota was postponed due to inconclusive COVID results. Thank God there was no more drama there, and we were able to get game two or game one in on the same night as game two of the other series between the Aces and the Connecticut Sun. Let's start, though, with the Aces and the Sun. Are you surprised? Surprised? No. I mean, first of all, in the WNBA playoffs, it's really like you're never surprised and you're always surprised, right? Because there's just so much talent. And one through eight, we see one through eight that enter the playoffs. We're past single elimination now. So we're we're going to have series. And I think what we've seen for Connecticut and Las Vegas is that this has a, this series has potential to go all kinds of ways. The Aces got blown out in game one. Um, and then it was right down to the wire. I mean, I was looking at some of the stats. I think with 31 seconds left in game two, you know, we were we were basically knotted up, tied up. And then it went basically, or it was a three-point game, excuse me. And then it went to a six-point game out of reach for Connecticut within seconds. So that's the kind of basketball that we get in the WNBA playoffs. We are absolutely here for it. I will say, and Holly Rowe, obviously we love her, doing a tremendous job reporting inside the bubble. It looks to me that the Aces were super sluggish in game one. They had not really found their rhythm, whereas Connecticut had just knocked off Phoenix, and, you know, they've got the energy coming in. Yes, obviously that's a big point when you talk about the, the playoff format. So it's two rounds of single elimination games, and Connecticut came through that, as you just mentioned. But for Seattle and Las Vegas, they, they hadn't played in over a week. On the one hand, in this whole wobble situation, you hear players and, and coaches in particular talking about that this gives us time for practice, or the Lynx talking about we can game plan with rookie Crystal Dangerfield, who I know we'll talk about um, a little bit more now that we have practice full court practice but on the other hand when you have such a condensed season 22 games per team you're used to a certain flow and especially for players that have nagging injuries sometimes you you know you stiffen up a little bit so again one of those things that it's a roll of the dice so to speak as to how it's going to impact any particular team and even any particular player yeah we're certainly watching that literally play out in front of us and you mentioned injuries in game two, Alyssa Thomas goes out in that first half with that shoulder injury. Anybody that follows the W knows that Alyssa has torn labrums in her shoulder um, and has played through a tremendous amount of pain. We obviously, first of all, hope that she can get healthy and return, but that potentially is a big time table turner in this matchup. Absolutely. I think it was about five minutes into the game and you see AT writhing in pain and it was mentioned by the amazing Pam Ward and LaChina Robinson on the call that it's, it's unusual to see AT show um, <laughs> any kind of emotion that isn't just flat out disgust <laughs> with people not putting respect on Connecticut. But <laughs> jokes aside, obviously AT was very bothered. We did see Alyssa Thomas return in a sling. So if anything, it's good that she was able to be part of the team in the waning moments of the game. 
not sure as of yet. And Kurt Miller, head coach of the Connecticut Sun, really didn't have an update. But we'll see, we'll see what happens. I think where that impacts the game is, again, that feistiness, right? That intensity that Alyssa Thomas brings that Connecticut really relies on. They played really well. This was a close game, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so now it's just making those adjustments over time. I think they did well uh, to play without Alyssa. Now it's, are they going to incorporate her back in? Is this something where they'll have to game plan without her? And keeping that level of consistency because there were little things not boxing out you know asia wilson went off in the fourth just those things tightening up those things make them even more of a contender you mentioned asia wilson mvp of this season vegas also is home to the sixth woman of the year uh in dierka hamby who joins very elite company i believe she was just the third woman to earn that award in back-to-back -back seasons this was the asia we expected to see Right. And I, it was weird for me, Erica, because when the conversation about coach of the year and follow me around the barn here real quick started <laughs> to come up and Bill Lambert's name was in it for me, I, I couldn't really put my energy behind that because I feel like this Vegas roster is very talented. Now, granted, mm -hmm. he still has to stir the drink just so, but I didn't feel, and this is not a knock against Liz Cambage. I just think Liz and Asia are two very, very big presences whose games have some similarity. And so the absence of Liz was almost addition by subtraction. By no means do I mean that in a shady way, but I meant it gives Asia the space to fully operate. And Dierica is far more clearly identifiable as a Robin versus a Batman, as opposed to Liz and Asia, who both could be Batman. You know, I'm, I'm here for all of that, to be honest. I'm with you. I didn't have uh, Bill Ambeer. At, uh, he was top three for me, but I didn't have him uh, running with it. I, I did, uh, I don't get an official vote, but um, I did pick Cheryl Reeve. And I think it was a matter of what Cheryl needed to do to get some of her players that are not used to seeing as many minutes as they did this season. She really had to get them in a good headspace. Sometimes that's barking at them. Sometimes it's, you know, loving up on them. So, you know, there's so many things that you have to factor when it comes to a Minnesota team where there weren't a lot of expectations for this team to perform at this level in this season versus Bill Ambeer. However, I feel like coach of the year almost needs to be an award that we wait until we see what happens in the playoffs because playoff basketball playoffs in any sport I think is a different beast and my personal opinion is that none no league expresses that more acutely than the WNBA there's just so much that you need to be able to do in a short period of time and I think that's where not only players but coaches and coaching staffs as well really rise to the top I would agree with you there um and I guess you'll have people that argue, well, you know it's a regular season award. Well, we need an award in the postseason because <laughs> it is important. Exactly. Um, now, okay, so that's one series. The other series, speaking of Cheryl Reeve, Minnesota Lynx versus Seattle Storm. You, you know, Erica, I, I think Seattle Storm, if we, as we talked to people in June as we were getting ready to get underway, no one looked at you twice if you said Seattle was your favorite. Right. I think over the course of this condensed season, I wondered what the absences might do, and not from a ability standpoint, but from a chemistry standpoint. Because remember, mm -hmm. we didn't we didn't have Stewie and Sue last year, 
Jewel takes this next step in her game. She's having a tremendous season. Jordan Canada does the same. And it's not always, okay, they're back. Let's all just jump back into these roles. Correct. For game one to have come down to the wire, as I mean, Alisa, 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 mm, Alicia, can't get my name together. Alicia Clark made a tremendous play. But in many ways, Erica, I don't know about you. I was like, oh, this game deserved a slightly better finish. <laughs> I feel you on that. I really do feel you on that. You know what? Um, and I think it was Christy Tolliver was clowning on Twitter how she drew up a final play and all it was on the board was rebound. <laughs> like, I don't know, both of these teams in the fourth quarter or both of these games, excuse me, all four of the teams in the fourth quarter, I was just like, we got a rebound. We got a rebound. Cause it was just, again, it's just those, that absence of mind for a split second. And, and, you know, um, Clark talked about it. Hey, you know, Demiris Dantes turned her head. I cut in. I knew that I didn't have the, the, the greatest size going up against who they had on the court, but right place, right time made it happen. I would have loved to see overtime. I think, um, but, but we get a series. So that's the, that's the one thing that calmed my nerves um, because we, we are going to get a series. And I mean, if we get more games like that, we better hold on because this is going to be a good series. You want to talk about Minnesota. I, I did think Minnesota could take game one. I actually had picked them because I think they need either they needed to win last night, which was their game one uh, because of the delays or they need a win in game two if we're going to have this be anything other than a sweep. Um, and and I'm actually surprised. Even though I picked them, I was like a little bit surprised. I thought it was going to be more of a hot take. But Minnesota came to play. But there's still things. They, they at times look like a young team, um, yeah. a team that doesn't have as much playoff experience as the other three teams. And we'll see if, if that's a factor. Yeah, and you, you mentioned our – fantastic broadcast crew, Pam and LaChina, who we, are, we all love. I thought they made two really great points last night that stuck with me. One is Crystal Dangerfield, rookie mm -hmm. of the year, who we love. But for whatever reason, she struggled in the playoffs to get going. And I don't know if that's maybe a little bit of fatigue setting in or teams now are fully prepared for what she brings to the table and what she does for this link squad. And then the matchup between Nafisa Collier and uh, Stewie, Brianna Stewart. <laughs> My girl was about these block parties last night. Like, I was like, this is, I keep telling people, and I know that our league is driven in many ways by veteran leaders, but when I look at the next up, the next wave, girl, like, that was highlight preview. Cannot wait for the next five years of these chicks going head to head. Absolutely. I'm going to start with Crystal, uh, but yes to that second point as well. When it comes to Crystal, and I actually wrote a story um, for the New York Times about Crystal Dangerfield. And in that story, I was able to explore a little bit of what gets Crystal going. Crystal Dangerfield, she went to UConn. UConn is notoriously tough um, on players that they think they can really uh, prime into big time players, but also guards. Sue Bird will tell you that for sure. Uh, you, you're not walking into UConn just being a so-so guard. Like you, you gotta, you know, hoop. Um, so with Crystal, she, and she had admitted that before her first playoff game that she was nervous and she has tendencies uh, to get a little bit nervous or to get maybe a little bit lost in games. So I'm not surprised by that. I think also, yes, 
she won rookie of the year. We saw what she was able to do in the fourth quarter of that playoff game to even get into the semis, semifinals against Seattle. So yeah, teams are going to target her. And something that Katie Smith told me when I was reporting for the story is that the next evolution for Crystal is learning how to facilitate. Something that I noticed is that Crystal Dangerfield doesn't have a, a lot of assists. I think her average is under four assists per game. And she had no assist in that win to get into the semifinals. So that's something that now that defenses are going to start locking in on Dangerfield, she's going to have to learn how to impact the game in other ways, like perhaps a Nafisa Collier who on the defensive end with a very big matchup um, really was up to the task against Stewie. I loved that matchup. Of course, the drama of them also being uh, two UConn alumna going up against each other, former teammates. I mean, you just, you just love it. You love to see it. A hundred percent. I was like, I'm not turning back to this other game. I got to see how this game is going to finish. Like, this is fantastic. Um, we are, obviously, listeners, recording our pod on a Wednesday. It is going to drop on Thursday in, in advance of Game 2 in the Minnesota-Seattle series and Game 3 in the Aces and Sun series. Um, really quick, Erica, I don't – see, I don't even know if it's fair, but I do want your predictions. Who are you taking from both series? Who do you have meeting in the finals? Oh, boy. So I'll start with the second part of that question. I had been saying before the playoffs started that for me, it's it's Vegas and Seattle. Um, however, once we got into the semis, I did say that I want to see how the semifinals play out. Um, so I think right now, from what we've seen, I, I think it's still going to be Vegas and Seattle. However, again, <laughs> we opened with, are we surprised? I would not be surprised if that is not the matchup, just because the first handful of games have been so great. What I think we need to see from Minnesota is some of the things that we just talked about with Crystal Dangerfield. Demiris Dantes, I think, you know, was a little bit dejected after that game as well, um, kind of feeling um, Clark sneak in there. And, and that's a player that is actually pretty clutch for Minnesota. They need Dantes feeling good, shooting well, playing good defense to just love up on Dantes. I think something that a lot of people aren't speaking about is also Odyssey Sims. She came in like a, a vet uh, to really stabilize that Minnesota team. And I think that is going to propel Minnesota in game two. When it comes to Connecticut, that series between Connecticut and Las Vegas is tied. So of course, if we're looking upset city, it might be in that series. Uh, but we have to remember, even though Connecticut didn't have a great record coming in, that this is a this is a team that uh, in the offseason, they really pro uh, put a high value on having some veterans mm. enter the lineup and the roster. And one of those is Brian January, who actually in postgame was saying and ha has been told that this Connecticut Sun team 2020 reminds her and a lot of other people of a 2012 Indiana team that went on a tear, okay, in somebody's WNBA playoffs to then win the title. So we'll see. Again, I think if we're going to see an upset, it might be in that Vegas Sun series. But ultimately, I think right now, um, I, I say Vegas, Seattle, but asterisk, I'd be totally open and up for an upset. Something about that Connecticut team, they... they speaking of Twitter last night, Christy Tolliver, among others, were kind of like, all right, stop with this idea of the disrespect in terms of the capital CT and 
and that Connecticut has been disrespected. But they're absolutely right. Last year, you go to the finals, you force a five-game series. People are well aware of your squad. Now, not having John Quill Jones, making some moves in the offseason, does the squad look a little bit different? Sure, but in terms of the character of this franchise, we have seen and we know that this group is gritty, upset-minded, and just tough. And I think I would agree with you in terms of the likelihood of an upset between the two series. Vegas can be a little Vegas, which is flashy, <laughs> glamorous, and is not bang-bang. Connecticut is gritty, 100%. I think that's a fantastic um, point that you made on those two squads. But Erica, the other reason I wanted to have you on this pod today is because you have been killing the feature scene this year. <laughs> you had a tremendous piece about Dallas Wings rookie Satu Sabli for SI. You mentioned your piece for Crystal Danger on Crystal Dangerfield for the New York Times. From where you've been covering this year, you've been able to have these conversations with these women beyond just basketball. And we see that the WNBA very intentionally has made this year about more than just basketball. But what have you been most proud of in terms of the work and the stories that you've been able to tell this year? Wow. Um, well, first of all, thank you. Um, that's a that's such a, a lovely uh, compliment to receive. And um, it, that that's tough. I think it definitely is in the realm of social justice. And what I have enjoyed is that you know I I come from a background and actually being a professional advocate uh, in in child advocacy, and so to have that lens, I sometimes can be critical when it comes to athletes or. Uh, businesses entering into advocacy space um, because there's a lot of work um, and uh, years of work that go into advocacy. And for me, this season in the WNBA has really laid a foundation for players to not only be empowered and to use their voice, but to also um, be part of the learning process. Mm -hmm. There are things that when you want to change policies or how things are done in society that you have to humble yourself. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, again, coming from my background, that has been what's been the most exciting. And I think also you mentioned the Satu Sabli story. I also um, was able to talk with Leisha Clarendon and they have had an amazing trajectory to get to a place where they're comfortable um, being an activist. And that's a word that Leisha and an organizer, th those two words are words that Leisha now uses. And there's just a level of commitment that it takes to, to be at that level. Or a, a Satu Sabali who is so committed to being a presence when it comes to a lot of what we're talking about, um, racial injustice, but at the international level and engaging particularly Europe. Um, I know that's like an entire area, multiple countries, but, but you know, she comes from Germany. Um, but, but having those types of conversations and so for me that's been most rewarding is that there is uh this isn't you know a, a final destination uh this is an ongoing process and i've loved being able to tell stories that reflect that yeah and you, you've done a great job telling those stories i missed the leisure piece who was that for that was for the athletic so leisure clarendon and was able to explore just some of the parallels that Leja felt um, this season in particular um, between coming in, uh, you know, Cal had that top recruiting class and them going to the WNIT two years in a row, um, which felt like a failure and having to rebuild that team to how she now is in a completely different role, um, but a similar path. 
uh, with the New York Liberty. That's a team that's rebuilding on the rise. And now Leisha is a veteran there that, that has to really um, show these rookies the way. Yeah, yeah. And she definitely had some outburst performances this year. I remember early in the season thinking, you know, she may not be a marquee name when you think of how many high draft picks that New York Liberty squad has and how young they are. And yeah, the conversation was this team is young. Don't expect too much this year, particularly after Sabrina got hurt. But the integrity, the leadership, the experience, that is a piece of that puzzle that you cannot write off, even though this year for them has come to an end. Moving forward, that's someone who you can trust to be a stable building block for so many more reasons, not just her ability to score. Absolutely. And one thing that I loved that Leisha talked about throughout uh, their entire journey is that Leisha has been at her best basketball, which was her all-star year, when um, she entered as her complete self and was able to um, really talk about who who they are and, and just embrace fully all of the pieces um, that make, as Leisha would say, uh, them a perfect candidate for, you know, intersectional activism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I have learned so much through these women this year. Um, I can remember one of my good friends works for the PR agency, Fleshman and Hilliard, who facilitated the conversation with the women of the Say Her Name campaign. Mm -hmm. And this is, we're now talking about multiple moms who have lost daughters at the hands of law enforcement. Um, But then Janelle Monae hops on at the end of that conversation. (laughs) Michelle Obama the next day and just seeing Sidney Colson and some of the other players on that call having the opportunity to truly engage and to see. And again, learning from Leisure, she was the first person that put this idea of of performative allyship on my radar. But Mm. to see the integrity with which the WNBA as a collective has moved, with which each individual player who feels the call strongly to be at the forefront of this has moved. And even those who maybe would not identify themselves as activists or organizers, but to see them in line and supporting their teammates who are speaking boldly. Um, it has been incredible. Erica, why do you think it is though that, I, the question in my head, I was gonna try to say it more eloquently, but why do you think it took everybody else so long to get it? I mean, the, these women, have, I keep saying have been about this. Like if you know the W, they've been about this. Yes, that is the question, isn't it, Monica? And you mentioned, um, you know, some of the independent stuff that I've been doing, which includes uh, a YouTube series where I'm talking to athletes about social justice and activism. And in one of those, uh, when we were talking, when I was talking about basketball in particular, um, I, I just see so many parallels between um, basically any movement, any civil rights movement that we've seen, unfortunately, women, but especially Black women, um, are often the front line, but for some reason don't always make it to the top when we're talking um, about the history of such movements and the impact of such movements. Somehow those frontliners end up getting lost within that history. So I, I honestly, I mean, there's, there's a glaring uh, answer and that just is that we're a society that's not prepared to um, listen to women, um, to hold women and their work in high regard. And that's unfortunate because we're missing out on a lot. We've talked about social justice. Um, These are amazing mothers, um, amazing partners, amazing community members, and 
obviously we've already talked about how they just ball out of their mind. <laughs> no question. <laughs> Um, Erica, well, thank you. I'm glad we got to do this. Look at yes. Follow up, you know, as we get closer to the finals. Um, where can people find your work? Where can they find this YouTube series? Where can they find your podcast? Any tips on what you're about to drop late uh, in the future? Because, girl, <laughs> when you drop a feature, it is a must-read. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. You can find me. I'm most active on uh, Twitter, and that's elindsay08. That's E-L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. Zero eight, and uh, we mentioned ELA is kind of what what I go by. Thanks, Mama. Thanks, Daddy. Um, and so the YouTube series is Social Justice in Women's Sports, and you can find that over on my YouTube channel, which is Sports Talk ELA for Erica Lindsay Ayala. I love it, Erica. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, how long? Because I think I followed you maybe last season ish. But how long have you been covering the W? Wow. So I've been covering the W for about five seasons, I believe. Um, but I've been doing women's sports reporting because I cover a lot of other women's leagues as well for about six you years. Like hockey, you know, I, know. Like, I know that's enthusiastic about <laughs> hockey <laughs> or the woman of color rather. That's enthusiastic about. How did that happen? Well, so I'm actually glad that you asked because this gives me a chance to shout out my little sis. I call her little sis number two on social media, but her name is Jessica. Um, I have two sisters. They are twins. Um, but Jessica, the least athletic of all of us, but got really into hockey. So I was like, all right, this is what we're going to do, sis. I'm going to take you to the games. We're going to get the swag. We're going to read the stories. We're going to get you into this. And in doing that with my sister, I, I just started talking to reporters and people who had podcasts. And then they would find out that I was a former athlete. I played softball in college. And they were like, well, come on our podcast. Do this. Write that. And I was like, uh, I don't know if that makes me qualified, but sure, let's go for it. And now uh, this is my first year. I'm going into my second uh, full year of being a freelancer full time. Congratulations. Thank you. On that, because that is a feat in and of itself. I know. Yes, ma'am. Had a freelance, right? Um, <laughs> that's tremendous, Erica. I love it. And I appreciate, I think I do follow Black Girls Love Hockey. Is it Black Girls? Black Girl Hockey Club. Yes. And actually another great plug, Renee Hess is amazing. And if you want, I know hockey is a space where we, we have a lot of work to do <laughs> to make sure, to your point earlier, it's not performative, but that we're engaging in conversation. So my social justice series actually started on the women's hockey side but Renee has Black Girl Hockey Club they have a new campaign so I implore folks to go check that out it's amazing resources it will be catered obviously to the hockey community but Renee is an academic so I definitely trust any conversations around racial uh, social justice that they're going to be well vetted good resources so definitely check out Black Girl Hockey Club for sure, Erica. Thank you. I'm this. It's so nice to meet you virtually. Now you're more than just a follow. You have been it. I admire your work, and I am always about giving one another our flowers because it can be rough out here, especially All right. freelancers. All right. All right. Ain't nothing but a word, sis. And thank you, Monica. I mean, obviously, it's been such a joy to uh, see all of the work that you're doing. And we freelancers and particularly women, Black women that are here covering basketball certainly appreciate uh, that you're always thinking of others and bringing us into the fold. So thank you, Monica. I appreciate that. We all we got, sis. Hey. <laughs> that was dope. <laughs> 
The man I'm filling in for this week, King McClure, invented the Who's Trippin' segment on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. And we know King is going to be good to go next week, but in his honor, I will try my best to fill his shoes. But it's always ladies first around these parts, so Monica, Who's Trippin'? All right, Bruce, I got to say you're doing a terrific job of filling in for King. And does King even know that you used to roll with me before he came to the show? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We're happy to have King as well. All right, so I'm not going to give my entire Who's Trippin' to one large round man who shares his opinions all over the place. I'm just going to say shout out to Maria Taylor and Katie Nolan, who were in the direct ire of folks' opinions who we don't necessarily agree with. It is tough to be a woman in this business, and both of those ladies have excelled at what they do. So just shout out to them. My actual Who's Tripping, we're recording a part of this pod on Wednesday around 2 o'clock, and at 1.15 today, the grand jury in Louisville convened over the Breonna Teller killing earlier this year. It seems that only one of the officers involved was indicted on three counts of wanton endangerment in the first degree, according to CNN. Bruce, I am not the most adept at talking about our legal system. I know that people are wrongfully killed in this country by police officers. There are payouts, for example, the Taylor family receiving $12 million from the city of Louisville. But this is just sad. Um, and we had a great guest or have a great guest this week in Erica Ayala, and we talk a lot about the W. And earlier this year, Natasha Cloud said to me that a win for the WNBA season would be arresting the killers of Breonna Taylor. And it doesn't look like we're going to get that. On one hand, or not just an arrest, rather, a conviction and punishment. On the one hand, I am sadly not surprised. On the other hand, um, my heart goes out to the Taylor family, to the city of Louisville. Hopefully, if protests ensue, which I anticipate, they are not violent um, and people are safe. But I say all of this to say, we've heard a lot about voting this year from both leagues, the NBA and the WNBA. It is imperative that we all take advantage of our right to vote and go and vote. And not just in our national election. I know people want to see a change in the White House. But Daniel Cameron, the attorney general in Louisville, was voted in. And he's not moving to punish these officers. We've got to vote in our local elections. We've got to educate on the platforms on which our elected officials are running and take our part in our local society. So um, that's super sad news today. Louisville is tripping. Daniel Cameron is tripping. Um, there's nothing that anyone can do to make up for the loss of that young woman's life. But Considering all the attention, um, it's disappointing that a higher standard has not been pointed out. Well, I don't really have a whole lot to add other than that I agree with you, your sentiments, and feel exactly the same. I would like to come off of who's tripping, though, by honoring somebody that maybe a lot of the people who are listening to this show might know his name, never really saw him play. I'm actually old enough because <laughs> Gail Sayers, uh, played for the Chicago Bears in the mid to late 60s, retired around 1970 or 71. Was a brilliant running back whose career was cut short by injuries. Uh, was the youngest player ever inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But in spite of all of his accomplishments on the field, Gail Sayers and his teammate Brian Piccolo 
who was his fullback who used to block for Gale Sayers. Back in the mid to late 1960s, they were teammates on the Bears. Brian Piccolo, white, Gale Sayers, African-American. They were the first biracial roommates in NFL history. And beyond being role models for us, before we even knew we needed the role models, um, Brian Piccolo got sick and died at a very young age of cancer. Uh, and Gale Sayers, uh, there was a TV movie made about the two of them and their relationship called Brian's Song. Came out around 1971. You should check it out on YouTube. These men, Gale Sayers in particular, they were role models before we even used that term. Racial harmony, loving each other as brothers, having a bond that had nothing to do with the color of your skin, your religion, whatever, just simply kindred spirits. And the lesson that they taught us a long time ago is one that we would do very well to remember now as we move forward. You know, the only race that really matters is the human race. And that's the one that we all are in. And that's the one we should all work together to make strong, inclusive, and as diverse and welcoming as possible. Well said, Bruce. We definitely could use more of that energy in 2020 for sure. All right, people, it's time to wrap this thing up. Thanks to our producer and fill-in co-host extraordinaire, Bruce Bernstein, and our terrific editor, Tom Phillip. Please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. This week, the Mike Wise Show features Michael Lee of The Athletic. Oh, what's up, Mike? And they hit every topic that matters. Mike is great. Michael Lee is tremendous. Full Court Press has a new episode each Tuesday. This week, John Fanta welcomes Louisville head coach Chris Mack. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin had veteran journalist Ethan Skolnick, who, covered the, who has covered the Miami Heat for decades. BJ Armstrong is back with Eric Newman on the Pure Hoops podcast, which drops every Friday. And King McClure and myself are back next Thursday with a brand new edition of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks from Pure Hoops Media. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Listen up, friends. The COVID-19 pandemic still with us. So please keep all the various medical professionals and essential workers in your thoughts. They are today's superheroes. Please continue to maintain social distancing. Wash those hands, and as Monica would say, clean those nails and wear that mask to protect yourself, myself, and others. And please keep working for social justice with our fellow citizens of all races and religions who are striving for a more inclusive society. And if you like buckets, boards, and blocks, please subscribe, rate us, review us. Five stars if you don't mind. It would mean a lot. And until we meet again, Monica, here's the alley-oop. Enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.